Wondery Plus subscribers can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free right now. Join Wondery Plus in the Wondery app. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. Hey, everybody. Uh, I got a great one today. Huh. You know, for a change. And that's because we have Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt back. They're our COVID team. Lori is a Pulitzer Prize recipient for explanatory journalism. Let me explain what that is. No, I don't, I don't have to. But it's a very prestigious category as uh, far as, as Pulitzer goes. And she won that for writing uh, about an Ebola outbreak in Zaire. She explained it. And also she writes for Foreign Policy uh, magazine. And Andy, Andy Slavitt. Andy was the head of Medicare and Medicaid uh, for the uh, t- last two years of the Obama administration. That is a trillion-dollar agency. A trillion dollars goes through that agency every year. Andy recorded my first podcast right after the 2018 election, in which we talked about how Democrats picked up 41 seats because of how Trump and Republicans uh, tried to undo the ACA. But Andy did say... On that podcast, that there had been no evidence that Trump or anyone in his family skimmed off anything from that trillion dollars. So we established right off the bat the Al Franken podcast was going to be very fair and even handed. No evidence of Trump family skimming from that, from that. Uh, but we started teaming up Lori and Andy during COVID, and they're uh, quite a powerful team. Uh, very, very good at explaining things, of course. That's that's why Lori won the Pulitzer in that. And Andy uh, not only explained COVID here on the podcast, but also uh, tried to explain it to the Trump administration, uh, tried his best to be helpful. His book, Preventable, is a, a powerful critique of how badly uh, Trump mishandled uh, the crisis. Andy uh, was a senior advisor for President Biden for the uh, first four months of uh, the Biden administration. That was the understanding he had coming in. That he'd be there for the first four months. And we start our discussion with me kind of suggesting that he's needed back in D.C., but he likes his home in Pasadena and, and his family. Well, you'll hear what I say. But clearly, uh, we're in a very challenging time. Uh, for all of us and the Biden administration, they've acknowledged a few mistakes, uh, not anticipating Delta or uh, Omicron, and finding ourselves short of tests and facing a variant 
that is extremely contagious, if mercifully not anywhere near as virulent as Delta, especially if you're vaccinated and uh, boosted. Nevertheless, uh, it's, uh, it's thrown us for a loop, and there's a lot to get to here, and we'll do that in a moment. Uh, we record this on Tuesday, January 4th, and you'll be listening to this after uh, the January 6th anniversary. But things are just getting pretty scary all around. More Republicans than ever believe the election was stolen and that storming uh, the Capitol was somehow justifiable or the right thing to do. I'm recording this monologue the next day, and I just heard Merrick Garland's his speech, and I, I thought it was very good. The best thing he said was that uh, they're going to pursue anybody at any level, whether they were present that day or not. And, you know, as far as I'm concerned, from the evidence that's been gathered so far, I'd say that the most guilty person is Donald Trump. I think that's, that's pretty clear. Chuck Schumer has promised to vote on the floor on the Freedom to Vote Act and the John Lewis Voting Rights Act, and we're going to need all 50 Democrats, not just to vote for the bill, but to vote for some kind of modification of the filibuster. You've heard me talk about the Ornstein-Franken modification. I won't go through that again. But I've been talking to a number of my former colleagues, and there are a number of permutations. And uh, my argument to Joe Manchin is that the way the filibuster is right now is that there is no bipartisanship. Uh, yes, the infrastructure bill was, but that was, that was because Republicans had to vote for that. Because otherwise, Democrats would have put every bit of infrastructure into a reconciliation package, and Republicans would get no credit for anything. And right now, they pay no price for filibustering. And Norm and I would make 41 of them go to the floor and stay there and debate. And that might make them come to the table. Anyway, it's a crappy time all around. But that's a bad attitude, right? Right, everybody? What a great world we live in. I mean, think of what a gift uh, God has, has given us. And listen, as Stuart Smalley says, it's easier to put on slippers than to carpet the entire world. But Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt are people who are laying down carpet every day, and a big part of the way they do that is by splaining things, as Ricky McCarthy used to say. And that's why this is going to be a great one. You know, for a change. The best way to learn a language? Immersion. Living where the language is spoken and using it every day. But if that's not in the cards this year, you can still learn a language the second best way, and that's with Babbel. Babbel's quick 10-minute lessons are handcrafted by over 200 language experts to help you start speaking a new language in as little as three weeks. Babbel's convenient courses have helped me learn real-life conversation in German. For example... Let's say you wanted to order soup with your dinner. Die Suppe würde mir auch gefallen. That means the soup. <laughs> that, means, that means I would also like the soup. And that way, I get soup with dinner. Here's a special limited-time deal for our listeners. Right now, get up to 60% off your Babbel subscription, but only for our listeners at babbel.com slash franken. 
Get up to 60% off at babbel.com slash Franken, spelled B-A-B-B-E-L dot com slash Franken. Rules and restrictions may apply. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Let me start, Andy, by saying, uh, are you happy you left after four months or do you regret that you left after four months? And are you tempted at all to go back to help? Look, I, I, I originally signed up to, to get the thing going, and, and I'm glad I did. And I think um, we focused on a lot of the right things. Clearly, um, you know, events evolved, um, and it became a lot harder to deal with and new challenges with, with Delta and now with Omicron. And so I am, I am in as much touch as, as I can be with the people in the White House. I do think it's still an all-hands-on-deck effort across the country. Um, there's a lot to do. I'm not exactly tempted to go back just because uh, it was hard to serve in the first place. And I'm here uh, with my wife in California, but surely trying to do more and more every day and uh, help the team there, who I think is is working really, really hard. Lori, does he sound <laughs> slightly defensive? Look, I don't I don't want to get into how Andy sounds, but I will. I, I, I've been really astonished by certain things going on in the current Biden administration and in terms of how they're handling their messaging. And I sit in on almost all of the COVID related press conferences as I did when Andy was in them. And uh, I've even managed to get a couple of my questions in and I have been finding them incredibly defensive and their message extremely confused when it didn't need to be, especially the CDC messaging uh, and I, I've been astounded, flabbergasted, and deeply disappointed by the failure of the administration, including the president himself, to say anything about the attacks levied against Tony Fauci, and in particular now the death threats that include a Fox News host saying, take the kill shot in reference to Tony and his family members and Steve Bannon backing that up and other members of the Fox world saying things that, such as he is Joseph Mengele, says Laura Logan. Uh, he is a dog torturer, says Laura Trump. Uh, he is Mussolini, says, what's his name? Tucker Carlson and on and on and on. And the number of death threats against Tony and his family members has risen. I asked in the press conference, what is going on? Why aren't we hearing anything in defense of Tony, the whole Democratic Party? Nobody is saying a thing about the man who has put himself out on the limb as the nation's spokesperson on rational scientific response to this pandemic. And the reaction from Jeff Zients in the White House was, well, we're against uh, disinformation. This isn't disinformation. This is death threats. You know, uh, Andy, I, uh, this is what I hear from people. It's not 
not specifically about Fauci, but although I agree with everything Lori said about that, uh, I think he's a hero. Uh, but it's about the messaging. And I always felt that you were an amazingly disciplined and also smart, really smart messenger. And also that what came from you was pretty, it was completely consistent all the time and set the right tone. And that's what I'm talking about. Uh, why there are a lot of people who want, want you back there. Now, uh, it doesn't sound like you want to do that, but what, what is your, uh, comment on Lori's critique of the communications? I know that, does that put you in an awkward spot? Look, I mean, where I would ground folks is, a couple things. Uh, and look, everyone who is in that White House or CDC um, is on the line, accountable. And I was then, probably still am now, and they are now willing and to be accept any criticism for anything that's not getting done right. I mean, they ran. We, you know, this is this is this is our job. This is their job. And I don't think anybody would shirk from any responsibility. Principally, what's happened is they've been surprised and we've been surprised. I think we've all been a bit surprised um, at the nature of the variants and uh, unprepared for a wave of this magnitude. And so people are dissatisfied because when you run into things at this size, you run into shortages. And I think it's best to say, look, we are going to go through a tough period. We're going to have shortages. We're not going to have enough tests. Mm -hmm. Um, Here's what we should be doing about it in the meantime. Uh, We are not going to have enough therapeutics for a while. We need to be talking about that. And we need to be talking about, I think, not just what people should do, i.e. go get boosted. People have heard that message. But why and what's going on and what we've learned. And as we learn things about, say, for example, the waning of immunity, or as we learn things about the nature of the virus and the variant, I don't think we should need to be so concerned about packaging it up neatly for the public, I, which I don't, which I'm not saying we are, but I think we should just tell people very point blank, honestly, here's what we're learning. And people are actually much smarter, I found, than you tend to give them credit for when you work on communication. If you tell people this is a complex variant, it could do this, it could do this, this is why we're recommending this, this is why we're changing this opinion. I think people will respect that and respond to it. They may not like it and you may not be popular and, you know, it's hard to, it's hard to run through something so difficult. I, I, I remember talking to you while you were doing this, while you're doing it in the white house and you were fastidious about if anything came out the slightest bit, either wrong or hard to understand and which could cause a problem you would immediately correct it. And you are so conscious of that because it's, it, it's about credibility, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and look, I think what President Biden did um, when he said, look, I, should we have had more tests? Yes, we should have had more tests. I thought it was a testament to the kind of person I've experienced the president to be, which is someone who was just going to talk in plain English, not talk around issues, not try to claim things were perfect. And I think that's the right tone. I do think it's easy to get in a defensive posture when you're battling a situation like this. And, and I think it's important to try to come out of that defensive posture and realize that 
everyone's not blaming you for the situation that you're in. And, you know, you're not always going to get it right. And you're best off saying, you know what, we didn't see that then. Now here's what we see now. And I think it's a more frequent dialogue. And I do, uh, I talked to Rochelle uh, Walensky a little bit over the weekend over text. Head of the CDC. I do hope she speaks more directly to the public more frequently uh, because she's got a good voice. She's very honest. Um, she doesn't need to be managed. She can say it like it is. And yes, she's going to get criticism, but she's going to get criticism no matter what she says. You know, she's too fast, too slow, too aggressive, not aggressive enough. Um, that just goes with the job. And I think you just have to kind of uh, face up to it. Okay. Well, I just, to me, you were kind of the spokesperson or for about two thirds of it or three quarters of it. And I guess Fauci too. And it just seemed pretty, pretty seamless and easier for people to understand. And, and, and things are complicated. Where are we now in terms of complications? We had, Lori and I were just talking before this, a, a reported million yesterday. Uh, that, that number is a lot smaller than probably actually, you know, tested at home. A lot of people don't report it, right? Look, let's back up here a second. I think when when Andy was in the White House and we were in the transition from the Trump era of handling COVID to the Biden era, it was a relatively straightforward problem. It was roll out the very effective uh, vaccines, convince the American people to get vaccinated, try to make it all happen as fast as possible to bring the epidemic under control. I don't think anybody was really ready for the discovery that about a quarter of the population was going to absolutely refuse vaccination and that this was going to drag out uh, the Delta crisis. Where we are now, I think, is we've lost control of the entire narrative. Uh, the virus is leading us by the nose. It's in charge. We have no reliable database anymore. We have no idea, really, how many people in America are testing positive because we don't even know how many are getting home tested, but it's, it's certainly in the millions. Uh, we also have no real clear system for tracking any of that. We haven't even created smart cohorts where we can just track samplings of people to see if you're home testing, what's the trend? How many of you in what regions of the country are coming up positive? We, we're very slow to find out what, which therapeutics, which diagnostics, which uh, everything except the vaccines work against the Omicron strain. And in fact, some of the diagnostics are not performing well against Omicron. None of the monoclonal antibody right. treatments are performing well against Omicron. Uh, we have a new variant that has emerged out of Cameroon and is now in France. And Macron has issued an, a warning about it and is using it as a way to try and convince more French that are opposed to vaccination to get themselves vaccinated. Uh, we will certainly have more variants. We have to stop letting the virus surprise us and go to the phase of expecting the worst expecting the worst and preparing accordingly. And we just don't ever do that. We don't seem to think that way. We, we are off wildly in our databases. Uh, the, the Economist did a, a massive number crunch to guesstimate the global totals. Uh, officially, only a, a less than 6 million deaths have been reported uh, to COVID, but it is certainly, according to The Economist, closer to 15 million. In the United States, we know we undercount deaths. 
which is the quote unquote easiest thing to count. Um, and, and we definitely are under count, counting a lot of the hospitalizations and absolutely we have lost control completely of the case count to such a degree that some of the government responders have been on making the talk show circuits lately saying, well, the case count probably doesn't really matter because what matters is how many people are taxing the hospital system. Well, I'm sorry, but you know, six months ago, you told us the case count is a clear indicator of preparedness needs for the hospitals, of preparedness needs for masks, equipment, uh, diagnostics, et cetera. And now we're being told, hey, it's utterly irrelevant BS number because we don't have any way to count it. What we know is it's off the charts. If it's a million officially, it is certainly closer to, you know, one and a quarter million in reality, um, possibly far more than that. And we now have a situation where some states uh, leaderships have made decisions to pretty much start as a matter of policy, ignoring case counts. And Florida, where the case count increased 968% in six days, has announced that they still won't do anything about mandating masks, mandating closures, mandating social distancing, mandating vaccination and boosters. Instead, that governor is demanding that the federal government allow him to compete against other states in open bidding directly to pharmaceutical companies demanding monoclonal antibodies, which, hello, DeSantis, don't work against Omicron. Okay. Sounds like um, we have to make some adjustments. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh, uh, that's pretty uh, depressing and dire. Omicron, of course, uh, uh, not as deadly. We don't know that. Uh, Let's back up. I want. I want to back up on because there. There simply is so much misinformation out there or confusing information. What do we actually know? What does hard science tell us? What the hard science tells us is we're now into year three of a pandemic. Various forms of the virus have circulated around the planet multiple times. Almost every single society. Uh, now we find even Antarctica. Almost every single society has had ample exposure to virus so that a very high index of the population has had some sort of baseline of immunization. On top of that, all the wealthy countries have been pretty densely vaccinated. And so we have each strain as it gets introduced is against a different background of susceptibility in the homo sapien population. You add to that, we've also are in year three, meaning that more and more people have grown accustomed to certain kinds of social behaviors that limit spread. And that, and they've grown accustomed to the idea that if they start to have symptoms, they should self-isolate. So we may also be limiting how many people each of us is exposed to who are, who are in fact in their acute phase of contagiousness. We don't really know that. What we do know and what we can say is that Omicron has mutated into a form that primarily attacks cellular receptors in the upper airways so that it's a really effective uh, colonizer of the trachea, the, the esophagus, the nose, uh, the bronchus of the mm -hmm. outer lining of the lungs. And that, that makes it more... That makes Much it more, more contagious. It makes it casually contagious. And, yeah, yeah. Merely breathing is enough to pass 
the virus to another person in a closed space. But that's why I say I thought, uh, and you correct me, is that it's less deadly because it doesn't get in your So it's less likely to cause pneumonia. Uh, however, what we don't know is what is the, the actual step that would have occurred in a completely immune, naive person, someone who'd never been exposed to virus or vaccine, flashback to 2020, when virus is in the upper airways, what does the immune system do to try and keep it from going into the lungs? And what's different today about our capacity to mount that kind of immune defense compared to uh, a year and a half ago? So when we say what attributes does the virus itself have that make it more or less dangerous, virulent, however you wish to define it, you know, I think we only really have a handful of decent studies in animals that give us some clues. And they do seem to indicate that uh, the virus is highly, highly immune evasive so that the immune response really struggles to tackle with it. But it may also have traded that off to some degree um, in terms of its ability to attach to a broad range of ACE2 receptor types on different cells in order to cause in infection in multiple sites of the human body. Now, all that said, I don't know that we can really sort that out in the clinical setting right now. And we, we don't know any new, like this, uh, this new one in France, or uh, we don't know which direction they're going, right? The variant that Lori's talking about, uh, just, which is B1640, there are 20 right. cases worldwide reported. So, I mean, I think we just need to be a little bit, there are, there are variants uh, happening all the time, every few days. Mm -hmm. So, um, I don't think this is something the public should get concerned about. I agree. Uh, I really don't. So I was concerned until 20 seconds ago. When no, and, and look, I think the I think the um, the thing we've got to constantly ask ourselves, I mean, it's all the things that Lori's talking about is, what do we know and what will we do differently? And what we know is a lot of what Lori said is right, that either because of some population level immunity that is effective, which, which by the way, would be good news, whether it, whether it was gained through the vaccines or there was gained through prior infection, or whether it's because this variant doesn't like the lungs, which would also be good news in, in a different way. We do know that a combination of that and getting fully vaccinated and boosted is very, very, very effective. Are, are there more people getting back? In other words, is there less denial now or? Yes. That well, look, I mean, I, I look, I, I think as a, as a matter of fact, you know, we've we've been vaccinating people, people in this country for a year and over 85 percent of adults have gotten their first shot. Now, when 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 I started in the White House, only 40 percent of Americans said they were confident they were going to get a shot. And we're now doing millions more shots uh, since Omicron. Um, it, it's sparking. Yet we had more people. So, yes, there are people who are in denial. Yes, there are people who aren't getting vaccinated. And it generally tends to go more by age than anything else. Uh, younger people are less vaccinated. Older people are almost entirely vaccinated. And if you're vaccinated and boosted, which I think the new news here, if there's one message that needs to get out among all others, is that the three doses is far better than two. And look, among all the other things that Lori said, I think if, if I boil down, though, the fact that we are still very fortunate that if you're boosted, 
you have a terrific immune response. Even to Omicron. Does, does that wear off? In other words, your third shot, how long does that have the efficacy uh, that you want it to have? We're not, we're it- not sure. We constantly are looking to Israel to see their experience because they tend to be ahead of the curve in the timing of when they roll out a whole new policy initiative step by step. And that's a, you know, they have a national health service, ta-da, and, um, <laughs> and, a, <laughs> okay. and a, it's fairly easy compared to here for them to roll things out. They are now going for fourth dose in the over 60 population because they've seen waning immunity from the third. Okay. And did they do the third sooner than we yes. did? In other words, it, okay. So what, what is the waning immunity? How, how, how long a period that was? I'm thinking of myself here, actually. Yeah. yeah. It, it's, I think it's useful to understand this. You know, you, you couldn't possibly have all of the antibodies for everything that you needed swimming around your bloodstream at the same time. Um, that's why that's why your memory B cells and T cells are there to respond after something invades. Right. And before we had Delta, we had something that invaded pretty slowly. And when it invaded slowly, that meant that the vaccine um, responded. Even two shots, yeah, it was able to respond in, timely in time, way. in timely way, so that you wouldn't even feel the infection. Now it responds. But it doesn't respond until after, oftentimes, you've got um, symptoms, you've got a runny nose, you've got a cold. But it does respond at enough times to prevent something more serious from happening in the, unless there's something really, you know, wrong with, you know, the, with someone who's immunocompromised or someone has some, some other kind of comorbidities. So that's the good news. The good news is that even with that the vac- those vaccines work. Now, what a third dose does is a third dose gives you this kind of adrenaline rush of a 20 to 30 times increase in your antibodies. And that stays with you. And that can actually prevent you from even getting sick. But that part of it only stays with you for maybe four to six months. And, and Lori can opine because she's probably spent more time on this. Yeah, well, that, that's kind of what I'm asking. Yeah. And when, when do we have to get our fourth? Even when it, when, when, it, when it wanes, the vaccines are still doing their jobs in the traditional sense. They're still activating your T-cells and your memory B-cells. What we're getting at here, what Andy's getting at is really, really important. I just want to back up one, an underscore one thing he said, because um, it gets lost a lot in the conversation about Omicron and this whole question of how many boosters are we all ultimately going to need. The way an immune system responds that's healthy, that's strong, that's vibrant is exactly as Andy was saying, that you get your initial exposure that trains the immune system to recognize this culprit. And it stores that recognition in what's called the B cell memory compartment. And then when that culprit reappears or something that looks somewhat like that culprit reappears, that activates a chain of events in the immune system that pulls that archive out of the B cell memory compartment and starts to rush out appropriate antibodies and the rest of the immune system response. But that's a time lag. And that time lag it Mm -hmm. takes to pull things out of the memory compartment and start mass manufacturing antibodies can be many days. And in the meantime, the virus, if it's able to replicate very rapidly, which turns out to be the case with Omicron, can flood your body 
with virus before your immune system has fully responded. The longer you go between doses, it seems so far in our minimal experience with all of this, the greater this lag time may be coming, pulling things out of the memory compartment. And so, you know, the good news is perhaps that the third dose gave that whole memory compartment issue a big, big jolt, uh, as, as Andy put it, gave it adrenaline, uh, but not literally adrenaline. And now the Israelis feel that at least in the senior population, where part of what we call waning immunity with aging is precisely a sort of deterioration of the, the rapidity of this pulling things out of memory, uh, just like you have a hard time pulling memories out of your brain as you age, your immune system uh, gets a little slower at pulling things out of its memory compartments. And that may get yet another, you know, literal shot in the arm with the fourth dose. So that's what the Israelis are gambling on. Do we need to do that? Can we say it's this many months or that many months? There's uncertainty, I think, every step of the way on that. Let me, uh, and I, I asked Andy this, uh, Omicron came from, or Omicron came from South Africa, Delta came from, I guess, India. We're not going to be safer uh, from these variants. Uh, this thing's going to mutate uh, wherever it, it is. So it seems like we're not going to be out of this until the entire world is vaccinated. I, I just want to know where we are in terms of doing that. Because, Andy, you're saying that how many billions of doses of the vaccine are there? We're producing now, I think, sufficient doses uh, to say that doses aren't the problem. Um, We should have enough doses to vaccinate. It's a distribution. Yes. If we were if we distributed them efficiently and everybody took them, you know, sometime in February of this coming year, we could vaccinate the lion's share of of the globe with at least at least the first or second shot. Now, the third shot is, as we talked about, is is another matter. And also- so, why don't we do that now? Just hear me out. This sounds like fanciful, but why doesn't our military work with, say, the Russian military, say, the Chinese military, say, the British military, and just? Go everywhere and vaccinate. Jeez Louise, are you crazy? We have enough conspiracy theories as it is. Now you want it to be the military doing the vaccinating? Whoa. I'm just saying <laughs> that unless everyone's vaccinated in the world, we're going to be vulnerable to all these different variants. We make a couple of really important points. One of them is the lack of global coordination at the G7 and the G20 level. You know, the U.S. and China, you know, at odds about a, uh, about a number of things, the U.S. and Russia at odds about a number of things not related even to, to COVID. Are we optimizing our global reach and coordinating through the bodies that exist? Well, no, we're, we're not. Now, the U.S. has, I think, and I went and researched this, U.S. has, has spent to, so far $250 million to USAID, putting people on the ground to vaccinate, help vaccinate, help people vaccinate. And Lori, Lori made a, a funny comment, but she's not wrong. Um, there, the, the big issue we have in, in Africa, in some parts of Africa, is a lack of trust in vaccines and in the vaccine. And I think this has also been, as Lori has documented, a well-earned lack of distrust that sometimes happens the way the U.S. has treated, um, say, the AIDS epidemic for a long, long time until PEPFAR. So 
you know, there there are trust issues that are trickier um, than, than even the ones we face at home. They're similar. There are distribution issues to get last mile issues. I think the U.S. is doing some work there. Uh, I'm sure more could be done, and it would be great. All to I'm saying is that those people, if we wanted to kill them with our military, we could find, get those people and kill them. I just want to get them and vaccinate well, them, but I hear what you're let's, saying. About let's trust. look for a second <laughs> at the best example. The only other time, historically, we ever tried to eliminate a human disease, highly pathogenic disease, with vaccines as our primary tool is smallpox. That vaccine had been around for decades. It was well known how to use it. All the equipment necessary was around. The vaccines were around. It took a critical moment in the 1960s at the height of the Cold War with a joint offside agreement between the United States and Soviet Union to jointly sponsor an effort through WHO to mass vaccinate the planet. And then the U.S., wisely allowing the Soviets to take the front stage and make the actual proposal, which then committed them to staying on board because it was their initiative. And the U.S. then swept in and backed up the effort globally. We had a couple of things going for us. One was smallpox did not infect any other species except humans. So we didn't have to worry about whether or not Getting rid of it meant we had to go out and mass vaccinate animals. That is not the case with COVID, sadly. Every single mammal we look at is vulnerable to infection, and there has been human-to-animal and animal-to-human transmission of this virus. The second thing is the vaccine was as close to 100% effective as you could ask for with one dose, and you could tell who had been vaccinated because it left a scar on their arm. A very distinct scar, unlike anything else. So rank amateurs could be deployed to identify vaccinated and unvaccinated at the village level and be taught how to vaccinate. In some countries, the army was deployed. In some countries, the police forcibly vaccinated people. Um, and that's it's unfortunate that it got to that, but that did occur Um, But the United States' role stayed away from deploying our military actively in the vaccine campaign. It ultimately succeeded within about 10 years of its initiation and succeeded spectacularly. But we have to ask, you know, how large was that deployment? When I was asked by Secretary General Guterres way back in early 2020, what should be our strategic plan, I said, You know, we have to make and encourage drug companies to develop an oral vaccine. We can't depend on needles because it's so hard to to mass distribute sterile vaccination equipment. And we have to have a vaccine that doesn't require a cold chain. Uh, And it has to be a single dose vaccine. It should be oral or nasal. And we have to reactivate the entire global polio network which was, uh, you know, many millions of people deployed to go out and do oral vaccination of children all over the planet in very remote areas, very effective. Let's reactivate it. Let's get that ready to go. And then we'll roll out that vaccine. Well, sadly, of course, everything I was requesting didn't happen. And there's no indication that any of those conditions will be met anytime soon in terms of the nature of the vaccine. 
Are we working on an oral vaccine? There are must some be. in the Somebody pipeline. There are nasal ones in the pipeline. But, you know, the the mRNA model has come to be the, the dominant, you know, pride and joy of this entire fight. And right. we just never will have enough vaccination, sterile vaccination equipment and skilled personnel to execute vaccination. There's a great series of reports you can look at in both National Geographic and NPR following vaccinators through the Andes, climbing up into the Peruvian mountains and Bolivian mountains and so on to try and vaccinate people in remote villages, getting all the way up there and finding that the whole village has been inculcated with anti-vax information from evangelicals and they all refuse vaccination. This is what we're up against. And the longer it takes to reach remote areas and to reach uh, poor populations, the more time is out there for the false messaging to reach them. Messages fly faster than do our vaccines. Boy, oh boy, that's depressing. Let me ask, I'm going to ask Andy a question if I can. <laughs> okay. Have you seen Don't Look Up? Yes. So when you, obviously the metaphor there was intended to be climate change, but when you thought about it in the context of COVID and having been in government, what rang true for you? I thought it was a very clever movie if, if people haven't seen it. It did hit me about how easy it is for us to deny. Well, not only deny, but I thought the, the clever part of the movie was that were the things we do to distract ourselves from facing hard realities and hard truths. And, you know, some of the things that you're talking about, you know, they're, un they're unpleasant. Um, they're not fun to think about. So we choose to find all these distractions. And I think the movie really kind of um, just, just showed us as a, just as a society, how good a job we do distracting ourselves from anything that, you know, requires us to deal with something very, very hard. Um, that's how I took it. I've been doing a lot of thinking about why it was possible with the greatest generation, World War II folks, to maintain a steady facing of reality against, you know, what initially looked like a really losing effort for America. Um, certainly a great deal of loss of life. Going to battle on two massive fronts Every day, the nation listening on the radio to the latest sorry news from the battlefront. And yet, reality was something that America could come to grips with, and they rallied with it. And I've tried to understand what's different besides the internet and all that, blah, blah, blah. And I think one thing is the fight against Hitler, Mussolini, and uh, Japanese leadership, Tojo, and so on, was in, a, in many ways a storyline, a narrative. And you could have your heroes and your pivotal battle points and characters, and, they, and you could follow them as millions of Americans did every day on the radio to get the next installment of the great American defeat of this horrible set of enemies. We're not seeing our battle for climate change mitigation or our battle against pandemics in the same way. Instead of seeing it as a, you know, set of victorious struggles by humanity against this uh, set of existential crises, we're seeing it as battles against each other 
Oh, those stupid evangelicals. Oh, those idiotic Republicans. Oh, those, you know, numb nut liberals. And we're, we're battling each other more and following each other's foibles more than we are in a kind of World War II-esque way. We, we can talk about what's happened since, you know, 1941 to this country in terms of suspicion and divisions and conspiracy theories. And I do think Limbaugh and Fox and then now social media has just torn us apart. But how much is like Trump instead of getting the vaccine on TV? How much did that set us back? Why didn't he just sit down on TV, get the vaccine and take a victory lap for having developed it? It, and finally, he said something just just of late. But was did he just want as many people to die under Biden or something? I mean, this guy is pretty sick, I think. I wrote a book that in large part had to do with the the, the denial and the lies he told and the costs of that and, and preventable. So I'm not going to say that um, it was anything other than uh, horrible negligence. But I do think that is where I, I agree with Lori that some of these issues are are deeper, even you know I think Trump Trump wrote as a he's a populist he wrote a wave of disaffected anti-establishment anti-science people that were already there before him and now that he is talking positively about getting boosted um, he's finding that 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 is a more powerful force than he is and and so I think that's a bit deeper likewise. Uh, what I think Laurie's talking about is something that I recently wrote about, which is it's hard to have a faceless enemy. Um, and it's just to the point of we become, it's too scary to fight against something that is a, a dead thing that multiplies in a random way um, that has, that has, that fights for survival. Um, it's much easier to fight against somebody we disagree with politically or otherwise and so I do think we take our eye off the ball to some extent because we make it easy for ourselves to say, well, this whole thing is so-and-so's fault. And despite all that I know about Donald Trump, Donald Trump didn't create the virus. And we'd be very close to where we are. We would have a lot more people alive, but we would be very close to where we are today, even without Donald Trump. Yeah, I, I think you're spot on with all of that. I would go... <sighs> Look, it, you know, countries all over the world are seeing um, spectacular incidents of resistance and refuseniks of people doing battle over masking and everything. And it does you don't need a Trump. Look at Germany right now. Look at the Netherlands. Look at Belgium. Um, all over the world, there is a lack of, of human solidarity. And is this growing? Is this growing? Yes, I think it's because people are fed up. And the economic cost, particularly for smaller businesses, mom and pop shops, and frontline blue collar workers has been really overwhelming in every single culture. I mean, look at what China's doing. This China's, this net zero policy, the official policy of Xi Jinping's government means entire cities of four or five million people are placed under total, complete lockdown because of two or three identified cases. One city 
they've gone so far, a population of more than a million people is not allowed to leave their homes for anything, even food. We have people complaining because they have to put a mask on to go into a restaurant. Well, all over the world, steps are being taken that are far, far stricter than what we're doing. But everybody's getting fed up with it, regardless of what culture you're in. Okay, we're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with Lori Garrett and Andy Slavitt. Do you ever feel like you're settling? For your foundation, that is. Maybelline's new Instant Age Rewind Eraser Foundation doesn't settle into fine lines and wrinkles. With SPF 20 and moisturizing pro-vitamin B5, this foundation not only provides medium coverage and a natural finish, but also protects and nourishes your skin. And the best part? The blurring sponge tip applicator makes application a breeze. Say goodbye to cakey, uneven foundation and hello to a flawless, radiant complexion. Try our new foundation today and see the difference for yourself at amazon.com slash instant eraser foundation. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. We're back with Lori Garrett and Andy Slav. Let me ask you this about the uh, being able to go back to work five days after you've been infected. It's back to normal. Back to normal. Kids in school. Me working. Blah, blah, blah. Everybody wants their life, quote, back to normal. And I've been saying ever since the Wuhan outbreak started, there will never be normal again. We're going to go to something, but it won't be what you had. Yeah, but uh, uh, speaking specifically about about going back to work uh, after five days, because Dr. Fauci yesterday basically said we're we're going to revisit that because because I think there's been a lot of pushback, right? Andy, you must have been following this, right? Yeah. Well, the the question of five days. Let, let me let me try to clarify. What I think mm-hmm. is appropriate is to understand that if you've been isolating for five days, and you can get your hands on a test and take a negative test and it's negative you may want to take a second one because they're they're not as reliable as they once were but then you're you're very very likely to be not contagious now you could say well gee shouldn't you keep people 10 days for because there are you know 10 to 20 percent of people or so who will continue to be contagious and the answer is you know what one way or another you're paying a pretty big cost if you tell 10 to 20 percent of people who might be contagious that they can that they can leave isolation, it's a cost. But if you tell 80% of people who are not contagious that they have to remain in for another five days, um, that's another very big cost. And so there's no perfect answer. And I think the CDC, um, what they what they need to do is say five days if you have no symptoms, if you have symptoms that you have to remain in. And then <clears throat> at that point in time, get a negative test. If you can't uh, get a negative test, you should remain in until uh, until the tenth day, that's to me what I think. Where I think most people are. And and did the policy at first say you had to have a negative test, or did it say the you policy just didn't go say in? you have to have a negative test? The policy said you have to be symptom free. I mean, okay, well, I think that that's. What a I difference. would advise people 
is if you can get your hands on a test, I wouldn't leave the isolation, particularly if you're going to be around other people, until you can get a negative test. Yeah. And, I, would, and I, think that- I would go up at, at 40,000 feet here for a second and say, look, there needs to be a statement over and over again of messaging that tells the people writ large, look, the enemy is constantly changing. We're developing tactics. So is the enemy. What seems an appropriate policy on Tuesday is a counter, our counterattack or counterdefense against the latest maneuvers by the enemy. But the enemy's maneuvers will change, and that means we'll have to change our what, whatever tactic it is we're using, the testing, the home quarantine, the this, the that. Grow up, people. Put some pants on. Recognize this situation. <laughs> Just like World War II, we didn't go in with the same battleship tactics in every single confrontation. If we did, we would all now be speaking either Japanese or German. It was a given that the American people understood that we were evolving, getting better, getting better tanks, better airplanes, better this, better that. You don't attack the same way twice. Why it is so hard to get people to recognize that the CDC, the NIH, and so on, our counterparts all over the world, are constantly evolving new tactics to deploy new methods of responding against a constantly evolving and changing viral enemy. I don't know why that message is so difficult to convey. Our species engagement with SARS-CoV-2 is very new. The virus is still evolving. I mean, I just don't understand why it's so hard. Everybody's grown up with sci-fi movies where, you know, the alien enemy comes and first they present this way and we counterattack and then they present this way and we counterattack and eventually we win, right? So why is it so hard to translate that into our experience with this existential threat? I think part of it might be just how sick of this everybody is, unfortunately, because that doesn't help, but I think they are. And sometimes people are throwing their hands up. So you say it's, it's, it's not fitting into a 120 minute Hollywood narrative format. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's, it's in a, so far a two year format, <laughs> which with no, you know, when does the movie end? Um, we don't know, but it may be a year or two or three. Or may never end. Well, then I want to leave. <laughs> you know, I mean, I, I, I think there is a psychology of this that people are just throwing up their hands and saying, screw it. If I'm going to have to live with this for the rest of my life, I'll risk getting sick now because I'm not going to die. That's what I'm afraid is going on. And also, it's, it is the attention span of people is really limited. Unfortunately, and to, and to, and to, in defense of, of people who out there who feel like they did a lot of the right things, they've done what's been asked, they got vaccinated, they got boosted, they got their kids boosted when possible, and they still got COVID. So, you know, they're there. I think there are a lot of people, I'm sure, Al, that are everyone you know, that, that didn't pay attention or have short attention spans, but there's a lot of people also who I think really have been trying to do the right thing and um, are uh, finding it very difficult because it's a, it's not a, it's not a situation that lends itself to perfect solutions. It's not a a situation where you can assure someone that they're not going to get COVID. 
And um, thankfully, thankfully, at least right now, the consequences of getting COVID compared to the consequences of getting COVID earlier on a percentage basis for people, the odds are getting better. The tools are getting better. So the new world, I think, will look different. But, you know, remember, it's not the virus going willy nilly. Science is doing a very good job battling COVID. And ultimately, you know, we will end up with an array of of vaccines and better ventilation and uh, tests that can be taken rapidly and very good therapeutics. And, you know, those things will not make this likely to be anything close to zero and it won't stop mutations from happening, but it will allow the vast majority of people to live their lives, not focus on the virus. Sadly, there will be people that this will impact greater than other than, than others. And those are the people that I think we should be focusing our policy response on people who to whom this is a much greater threat and can't protect themselves. Yeah, I, I think we also kind of declared victory too early. Many times. I mean, how many times How many times have you read headlines or heard talk shows or whatever that started with the premise, well, as we're approaching the end of this epidemic, how do we rebuild the economy? Or um, mm-hmm. now that the epidemic is behind us, blah, 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 blah. This is, you know, premature declarations of victory have been a hallmark of this struggle. I, I know that when I you know, got my vaccines, my first two, I, I just went, oh, good. I'm never going to get this. <laughs> and, uh, and I think a lot of people felt that. But isn't it great to have this freedom that I'm not going to get this because I vaccinated. And that's exhausting, right? And it was sort of presented that yeah, way a was. little bit. And it's it? exhausting, right, to go back and feel like you've done those things, Al, and uh, and that and that those things are no longer true. And that's that's got to be that's got to bear on people. Still, uh, we we are, I think, very fortunate that even in the face of an ever mutating coronavirus, we have an effective vaccine. Um, and if we had not set those expectations, which I think were set a year ago when we saw the first results of the of the vaccine before there was such a thing as even alpha emerging. If we had said, if we had positioned things differently and said, "Look, uh, we're going to be able to prevent the vast majority of people from dying. All they have to do is take this vaccine and get regularly boosted," people would say, "Okay, we've met that promise." And I think we're going to have to um, acknowledge that that is the right promise of the vaccine. And likewise, the vaccines won't act alone. There will be other tools that will help as well. Can I ask a question? Uh, I have a grandchild was two. I have two that are five who've been vaccinated. Uh, do we know when we're, or are we going to be able to get a, a vaccine for for two year olds and three year olds and one year olds? Is is that going to happen? They're all in development. They're all in various stages of testing, and yes, there will be something that will come forward to FDA for approval probably in the not terribly distant future. I've heard some projections that we could by late spring have a, 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 pedia, a classic pediatric vaccine, meaning like measles, it would be administered to infants. The reason that things are taking longer with kids is a couple things. One is 
that they the dosing that they that they introduced that they submitted initially uh, it, it turned out to be enough for kids that were six months uh, but not not older than six months and then you know it's of course hard to find kids for these trials but it's going to be probably I I would say I'm a, it's a little bit confusing because of what's gone on with Pfizer whether or not it'll be spring or summer but you know it is it is a priority. I think what we don't know is if the next trial from Pfizer comes back and still has a similar result. In other words, that they they're adding an additional shot, and if that additional shot that they're giving to the same cohort still isn't enough, then they're going to have to elongate it even further. I also I don't know about you, Lori. I don't love the fact that they're now talking about a three do- three doses for a little kid, which is I think just a backwards way of doing it. Well, and again. If we were looking at oral or nasal formulations, mm-hmm. this would all be so much easier. Or a pill. Is there, is there a, a pill? I, there's a pill now that it, it's to prevent you from getting more sick. But, you right? know, let me, let me just remind you the other problem we have, which is that, and which we've tap danced around, hinted at several times, is that we've not ended up developing a strategy for vaccination that actually sufficiently protects you against infection. So we're really taking an almost clinical approach to vaccination. The idea is that it's preventing you from hospitalization or death. That's great, but that's more of a a clinical approach than it is a public health approach. If what we really want is to stop an epidemic dead in its tracks. The ideal thing is to wipe out all possibility of infection for an entire generation by being able to do as we have with other childhood vaccine preventable diseases, mass vaccination of infants and preschoolers so that they can then go on in their life without any threat from the category of virus. The smallpox does that mutate? Because that's well, smallpox. Smallpox is a much larger virus, a more complicated virus, and so its ability to rapidly mutate was quite limited. And again, well, that, that's when we first got the shot. As I was saying, when we first got vaccinated, I went, "Okay, I'll never get, <laughs> I'll never get this." And now we learn. Well, of and course, the other thing is. True. You know, we haven't been able to get the public to adequately understand the concept of zoonosis, the spread of virus through other species, how it morphs in other species and then comes back at us because that all got mixed in with this crazy bogus debate about the origins originally of the SARS-CoV-2 in Wuhan and the oh, we want to reject the zoonosis idea, inconvenient truth. We're going to go instead with it was made in a laboratory um, that was funded by Tony Fauci uh, and that this we're going to call it the Fauci virus and on and on and on. And so all of this very helpful potential conversation about what it means to have a virus that unlike smallpox, unlike polio, actively goes through other species and then comes back at us in other forms and that we've seen outbreaks of it now in mink populations in uh, pretty much any zoo animal 
uh, that's mammalian. We've seen it come out in them. And so it's much more like looking at the question of when does a bird flu morph into a form that is a human to human transmitting dangerous influenza. If we could have that conversation and understand that more clearly in the general public and get this whole origins bogus fight off the table, it would be a lot easier to, to tell you what it might look like to come up with a vaccination strategy that would protect a generation. Hopefully, uh, you know, is, is there some hope that this Omicron, that it will uh, sort of burn out as that'll give immunity to a whole bunch of people and that it'll and not kill many and help us not get it again for a while. I think the best case scenario we could look at with our current toolkit and our limited, you know, multinational uh, organization of response. I think the best scenario we can look at is something out uh, a couple of years from now where we are, we understand our, our, our essential public health responses. Clearly we know what works, what doesn't work. And we have sufficient immunity buildup in the human population worldwide to slow down this evolution process so that we are not constantly hit by new dangerous deltas uh, coming our way and we're and our vaccines are effective our our diagnostics are effective against the circulating strains so that we're able to jump when an outbreak occurs in a given community when the level of infection rises at a important level and take public health measures to bring it under control quickly before we have an all-out epidemic that's dangerous and then have annual or semi-annual vaccination, much as we do for influenza. That is the most likely best-case scenario. Unfortunately, eradication is not on the table anymore. It was when we had not yet seen it go into literally 100 species of animals including house pets. But at this point, I think we would have to have a heck of a toolkit, a 100% effective vaccine that could be used on animals as well as people and have some way of using it all over the world in an equitable manner to really be anticipating uh, eradication. So what we're looking at is eliminating widespread human-to-human -human transmission. That's the logical target of the moment. And that requires a, a, a sophisticated level of global cooperation that is not yet present. Okay, well, that's an optimistic <laughs> um, thought for us to uh, end on, I guess, that, that uh, gosh, th this is always great to, to have you guys, and uh, it's been too long. But uh, it's bad now. And thank you for giving us uh, all this information and some hope, I think, some in context, hope in, <laughs> in context, not getting people overly. This is not going to be over real soon. The thing to watch for now is what information we learn about whether or not Omicron uh, provides cross protection against Delta. Um, there's been a there's been one study at least that I've seen and that's been public from South Africa on this, which had 
promising news, but I think um, I think if you look at if you want to look just at the near term, I think Laurie's Laurie's certainly right over the long term. But if you want to look at 2022, if in fact the Omicron does provide a protection, even strong protection against uh, Delta, um, that would be a good sign for a better year. Uh, and so far, the first indication is that it might. So let's let's watch that all carefully. Okay, thank you guys. Uh, really appreciate it. Stay well. Well, I, I hope you enjoyed uh, listening. That beautiful music is by Leo Kotke, the great Leo Kotke. I want to thank Peter Ogburn for producing this podcast. We'll talk again next week. Hey, Prime members, you can listen to the Al Franken podcast ad-free on Amazon Music. Download the Amazon Music app today. Or you can listen ad-free with Wondery Plus in Apple Podcasts. Before you go, tell us about yourself by completing a short survey at Wondery.com survey. Once upon a beat, remember those stories and fables that would capture your imagination and you couldn't wait to see how they would unfold? And now, when you read them as an adult, you think some of these old tales could use a fresh spin. We have a perfect podcast to bring you the stories you remember, remix, and reimagine for the kids in your life today. Join me, DJ Fuse, and my trusty turntable, Baby Scratch, as we spin up new tales in the New Kids and Family Podcast, Once Upon a Beat. Wondry and Tinkercast are bringing you a jam-packed, music-filled weekly party where hip-hop and fables meet. It's Once Upon a Beat. Follow Once Upon a Beat on the Wondry app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to Once Upon a Beat early and ad-free right now by joining Wondry Plus in the Wondry app or Wondry Kids Plus in Apple Podcasts. Once Upon a Beat. The early 2000s was a wild time for reality TV. There seemed to be an endless supply of shows that delivered entertainment for us, but trauma for children. I'm Misha Brown, the host of Wondery's podcast, The Big Flop. Each week on The Big Flop, comedians join me to chronicle the biggest pop culture fails of all time and try to answer the age-old question, who thought this was a good idea? We recently looked behind the scenes of what was really going on at Abby Lee Miller's dance studio. Abby's biggest misstep wasn't screaming nonsensical catchphrases or throwing chairs on television, but instead, she was choreographing financial fraud in plain sight. Join me to break down all the wild details of Abby Lee Miller's story. Follow The Big Flop on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen to The Big Flop early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus.